Welcome to the Rethinking Politics Podcast, finding truth beyond the rhetoric. You are here with your two hosts, Brad and my good friend Dan, and we are here to talk about coronavirus or COVID-19. I know, I hope you're as excited as I am. Woohoo! <laughs> if you're like us, then you've heard nothing but COVID-19 for a long time, but nothing. this is going to be different. Nothing but COVID-19 for far, far too long, which is why we were hesitant to talk about it. But sometimes you got to rip the Band-Aid right off. So, but coronavirus is so much more than a virus. And I think we've all seen that, you know, there have been many, many responses to COVID-19, ranging from government responses to business responses to individuals' responses to social media responses and so, as we discuss it, we need to take all of that in. This is not going to be a just a scientific study of how viruses work, as much as many of you may have been interested in that. So, so where do we we'll start? We'll include some of that, though. But as usual, we're going to talk incentives. We're going to talk how things change. Exactly. But before we do that, I want to talk about something else. The uh, great Roman philosopher Epictetus once said, Men are not disturbed by things, but by the view which they take of them. And that, I think, is the perfect segue into what I want to talk about, which is actually not about coronavirus at all, but about the nature of fear. Because so much of what has happened with coronavirus started in a place of fear. And so I've actually spent a lot of time the past couple of days researching fear, researching how it works. You know, there's so much information about it, about the responses that your body physically has, the the chemicals that are released into the body as a response to fear. And all of that is really good information. But but let's let's hit some key points key points real quick. You know, fear fear is a normal natural response and it's something that the body's built for us to protect us, right? Um, fear comes in many different forms. You know, it's never something that you exactly want, but sometimes it's like chronic stress, you know, low intensity fear. Sometimes it's high intensity, fight or flight, panic. You know, there are lots of different kinds of fear. Also, fear is not as automatic as you might think it is. You know, that fear is actually part instinct. Um, most of this information I'm actually pulling from psychology today, if you're wondering. And fear is part instinct, part learned, part taught. And so each of those parts play a part in how fear works. And if I didn't say part enough, just let me know. You know, for example, pain is a very instinctual fear. You know, you're afraid of hurting and that's something that's ingrained in you. But other fears are, are things that we've learned or been taught. You know, an example of that is, you know, a near drowning incident can teach you that water is dangerous, even though some people may not fear water. You know, another thing would be cultural norms. You know, for example, some people are afraid of, of certain countries or social groups because it's a culturally taught thing. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. It makes me think of like uh, people who are afraid of, of being out in cold rain. Like, like they treat it as if oh. it's going to carry an illness with it immediately. That is, a, that is a fantastic example. So that brought me to a fantastic article 
that was actually posted by the European Molecular Biology Organization, which is a very scientific institute that publishes some very some very weighty articles. But this one was actually just about the consequences of fear. And in this article, I found a goldmine of how fear comes about in the modern age. And it talks about the characteristics of risk factors that cause us to be afraid. So the the influences that go into causing us to be afraid. Because there are so many of them. You know, the the world we live in is so much more than us just being afraid of things that cause us physical pain, right? <laughs> so for example, trust is the first one. You know, the less we trust the people who are supposed to protect us, um, the government or corporate institutions who are exposing us to risk in the first place, or the people who are even explaining it to us, the more afraid we're going to be. Um, another one is dread. Something that kills you in a disturbing, a scary way is going to be a lot scarier and is going to cause more fear than something that kills you in a more benign way. For example, <laughs> heart problems are much more dangerous than cancer. Now, they're significantly more dangerous, 25% more dangerous. But cancer is terrifying and is a terrible way to die. While having a heart attack is less so, right? Right, the, and so the you're slow more death of, of cancer. cancer. Yeah, it's very even visual. Even though very maybe visible. on paper you should be more afraid of heart disease. Control. Everyone knows this one. For example, if you're driving, you are much more likely to die than if you're flying. But when you're flying, you have no control. When you're driving, <laughs> yeah. you at least think that you have the control because you hold the steering wheel. And so you'd consider that safer whether or not it actually is. Another one is natural or, or man-made. Things that we consider natural and part of the environment we're less likely to be scared of than something that man has made. Choice. If we choose a risk, then we're going to be less it's going we're going to think it's less dangerous than something that was forced on us. Yeah, that's almost baked into the cake and that that it's probably in part your preference because it is less scary to you based on individual preferences that that then go into that. That's that makes a lot of sense that you would be less afraid of the things you choose, whether it's before or after. Exactly. The next one is children. And this one is another one of those that seems so obvious, but it's worth discussing, is the fact that we are always going to be more protective of our children. So if it's something that puts our children at risk, it's going to be much scarier and cause much more fear than something that isn't. It's that parental instinct. I, but I honestly thought you were going somewhere very different with that. I thought you were going to start talking about The Ring and The Grudge and the other horror movies that feature <laughs> children. I was, I was, I was going to agree. That children are way scarier. Uh, but no, I'm, I'm not going that way. That would have been amazing, though. Oh, right. Yeah. That's that's baked into to human nature, whether however you want to frame it, evolution. You uh, tendency to protect children. The next one is uncertainty. The less we know, the more unsure we are, the the more afraid we're going to be. If we don't have clear scientific answers, if we're not sure how dangerous something is, we're going to assume that it's more dangerous and therefore we're going to be more afraid. Uh, novelty, new risks, things that weren't there before that came out of the blue that we weren't expecting is going to be more scary. A great example of that is the the fear of robots. 
that has that it's been popular at times and less popular at times, but this idea that technology is going to take over the world, you know, the Terminator series is a fear of a new thing being bad. Mm-hmm. Awareness. The more aware we are of a risk or something dangerous, the more likely we are to be concerned about it. If it's something we never hear about, it's not going to be a big deal. An example with that would be child abductions. People are very afraid of child abductions when it's brought up in, in, in news coverage and things like that. But then when it's not being brought up, no one even thinks about it. And it's just a matter of awareness, not about whether or not it's more or less likely to happen. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I sometimes talk with people about uh, kidnapping statistics because people people are more afraid of kidnappings than they should be because uh, whether it's because it's a, it's movies that portray it or different things, it's so dreadful. You used the word dread earlier. Some things uh-huh. are more terrifying than others, not because they're more likely, not because they're more uh, – harmful per se or more uh more of a risk but just because the if it happened it would be so terrifying so people are are often way overprotective of their children in terms of kidnapping and have no idea how infrequently it happens just one of the things is you're as you're talking about fear here is i keep thinking of how uh how unstatistical we think normally yeah, uh, you can read statistics and balance some of these fears. You can you can add reason. You talked about how learning is part of our part of fear. If you actually study these out and and see what the likelihood is and see what uh, you know see the see what goes into it rationally, um, you can counter some of these fears. But your intuition, which is what you normally react with, that that quick thinking in your head that takes that takes something and uh, and judges the risk per se, or, or, uh, looks at this is often going to be wrong. If you don't have it, uh, if it's not tempered by, by good information. Mm-hmm. Anyway, and it's amazing that you brought that up because the next point on my list is, can it happen to me? And it doesn't matter how unlikely something is, even if it's a million to one odds, it can seem incredibly scary. If, It could easily be you. An example of that besides the children one is terrorist attacks. The odds of getting Mm, killed in a terrorist attack are abysmally low. But right after 9-11, everyone had the thought, this could happen to me. You know, this could happen to me tomorrow. And that thought made it 10 times scarier. You know what I mean? Even though Mm -hmm. the odds of it happening were so low. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, just for the record with the kidnapping thing, uh, a lot of people, you'll hear stats about uh, uh, missing children, and you'll hear stats about um, about human sex trafficking. Neither of those are kidnapping. The vast majority of missing children are not kidnapped. They're just missing, which is a different category, and, and it covers a lot of things. Kidnappings are so rare in America that it's that it it's truly irrational to be afraid of them, just like being killed in a terrorist attack. Now it does happen, like you said, and it's so vivid. It's such a terrifying thought of it happening to you, but the odds are just so small that it's not useful to change your behavior because of the the likelihood of it. Anyway. That's that an excellent point. Now the last one I want to bring up real quick is a uh, catastrophic versus chronic. Things that kill people all the time, such as heart disease that happens every day, is not nearly as scary as something that happens 
one time, one place. For example, a plane crash. You know, the plane crash is much scarier because it was it was this one event versus something that you're used to because it's constantly going on. There's that constant exposure. Okay, so that makes sense. It makes sense, right? And mm-hmm. and you know, and the article goes on to say, you know, that these factors offer insight into why fears don't always match the facts and how that can be detrimental to the decisions that we make and to how we how we look at risk in general. And and I think it's really interesting, but really really where I want to go with that is how this works on a larger scale because here we have a case where something that met so many of these criteria came together all at once. Kind of like, you know, your child kidnapping where it hit so many of those criteria that I mentioned. Yeah. That how can you not be scared of it? Coronavirus is very similar. You know, I talked about trust. There is not a lot of trust in what the government's saying, in what people are saying. You know, you go on Facebook and you're like, oh, people are divided on partisan lines, so I can't trust anyone. There's definitely dread. Coronavirus kills in a horrible way. Um, In terms of control, (laughs) I feel like I have no control over it. I can wear a mask. I can stay home. But a virus is inherently scary. Yeah, and even to the degree those are helping, it's not a visible help. It's not something you can exactly. You, can, you don't feel like you've accomplished something by wearing a mask. Usually, it it lacks that uh that effort to res- result thing that makes doing things so satisfying if they're mm-hmm. if it's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, some more of the ones you know, uncertainty. There's definitely uncertainty in how dangerous it could be, how dangerous it is. And that affects how scared we are. Novelty. Oh my goodness. I mean, it came out of the blue. No one was expecting it. All of a sudden our lives are completely changed. What's scarier than that? Yeah. And the lack of, like you said, you mentioned one of them, and maybe it was tied to novelty was being uh, unknown and how like, like initially when it came out, we don't, we really didn't know if it was going to kill 10% of the population or something mm-hmm. like that. You know, you, mm-hmm. we, we lacked, we, we had so little information that it makes sense that we, we jumped to the worst case scenario. And that's, I mean, if, if something goes bad really quickly and you don't know exactly how bad it is to assume the worst is a good call. A lot mm-hmm. of the time, right? You, you need, if you're not sure if there's someone in your room, in the dark of the room, you think you hear something and it could be someone invading your house. Now, the odds that that's the case are extremely low, but, but in that case, maybe you should act like they are there and you should confirm that because that's, even though the odds are so low, there's a reason that our fear works that way, that it's overwhelming. And so when it is unknown, to assume the worst isn't it isn't exactly a bad thing that could that's that could be prudence i couldn't agree yeah, more you're right though but it checks it checks like all of those boxes it really does check all of those boxes and so it's when no I, and I wasn't even finished with the boxes there there were there were several <laughs> more but but you, you got ahead of me no just just real quick you know there was the awareness you know how much coverage has this gotten how can you not be aware yeah, it's of it it's in front of you all the time the mm-hmm. can it happen to me you know this more than so many other things. Yeah, this can happen to me or someone I love, you know, at the drop of a hat. No one is safe, right? No one is immune. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then catastrophic or chronic, you know, this came out of the blue. It, this is this one event, whether it continues later, right now, 
this is one isolated outbreak, not isolated, but one isolated event this outbreak is, and and that's scary. That so, is frightening. So now that we've laid the groundwork, so what happens when when the country is is galvanized in such a way? Well, it made me think of an earlier time when that has happened before, and that is World War II. World War II, you know, World War II had been going on for a while, and it was definitely scary. And then Pearl Harbor happened. And Pearl Harbor, much like coronavirus, was something that checked a lot of boxes. And it was legitimate. It was a legitimate thing to be worried about because we were under attack by another country. Right, 9-11 would be another... 9-11 9-11 would be another example. But I bring up I bring up World War II because I'm trying to avoid partisan partisan bias that I, I want right. to look at. I don't want us to talk. I don't want us to argue back and forth about 9-11 and about the Patriot Act. No, I want us to look at World War II because there aren't many people. There are always people, but there aren't many people who are coming out and saying, you know, no, we, we shouldn't have done anything. We should have just rolled over. And so we can avoid all of that. You know, or we could have if you hadn't brought it up. So thank you. But ideally- <laughs> hey, can I just can I just use this opportunity to pat us on the back, Brad? We go to great lengths to try and avoid getting tangled up in partisan arguments for this, and actually get all the listeners decent information, something that can they can add to whatever it is they already think, something that can help them rethink things, reframe things, and understand things a little better, and skip all of the all of the partisan things that get in the way. Thank you for that pat on, pat on the back. I feel very puffed up, and You're my welcome. ego is is the size of <laughs> of of I. It's too big to even calculate. Anyways, <laughs> so World War Two, we were attacked. There was this galvanizing moment for the country, and the country went into fight or flight because, as we talked about, there are consequences of fear, and. And so it acted, right? And our country came together, and I don't think the country has worked so hard or been so unified since World War II like they were then, right? And that is really cool, and that is really powerful, and that is how the fear mechanism in the brain is supposed to work because it's designed to protect us. When there is a threat, whether it is a predator trying to attack me in the wild or it's a country trying to attack America, the responses are in many ways the same and the fear mechanism works in many ways the same way, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does. It makes sense. You, you need... You need to be able to act in unison and you need to be able to act quickly when there's an imminent threat. You need to focus on that threat and address it and everything else needs to fade away as it does. When you're when you're terrified, there is nothing in the world other than that thing. <laughs> like nothing else matters. Everything else goes away. And, occasionally, and that's critical because occasionally you need that clarity. You need that focus in a lot of cases in your individual life and even in, in the case of groups. In World War II, there was this incredible focus and this incredible priority on one thing, this tunnel vision, which allowed us to accomplish incredible things. But you have to keep in mind that with that focus comes consequences because now we are only concerned about this one thing. And so other things are going to fall by the wayside. You know, during World War II, we had strict rationing because there wasn't enough food 
well, there was enough food, but there, there wasn't an abundance of resources to go around, right? And that right. was a natural result of us putting everything into this war effort. And right. I'm not saying there was anything wrong with that. I would have been right there right there with you in this effort to support the war. But it's just something you have to weigh that there are pros and cons to everything, and there are always going to be pros and cons to this fight or flight reflex. And that's just a natural result. Yeah, as we've said and as we will continue to say, there are trade-offs in every decision and in every every dis and that's in terms of like like what economizing is, economics comes from economizing and you're you're trying to allocate scarce resources and life is scarce resources anytime you mm-hmm. focus on one thing it's at the cost of other things so you need to make sure that that fear is warranted because it's going to come at a cost to focus so narrowly comes at a cost and in another one of those that was a steep cost you have the japanese internment camps which were a you know gross violation of of rights for American citizens, but it was overlooked because we had a bigger priority. Yeah. And so that's something that you really need to look at and weigh. Is I'm and I'm not trying to judge those at that time who made those decisions. My goal is simply to illustrate that whether it's fight or flight for a single individual or fight or flight for a nation, that we are going to make choices based off of that fear and based off of that fight or flight. And we have to understand those choices, especially as we get a chance to reflect on what just happened and things slow down and we can evaluate and move forward instead of staying in that fear. What you said about fear is really interesting and it's particularly relevant to the news because the news is what, as you said, it's what keeps us aware. It's what holds these things in front of us so that we can focus on them should it be necessary. And there's an interesting feedback loop in the news that because the news requires views and if you aren't getting views you don't get to present the news (laughs) it's just a part of the the business of news they focus on the things that draw attention and the things that draw attention more than anything else are the things that are scary or the things that make us angry and in this case with coronavirus where there's tons of things that people can draw on there's always updates that are relevant there's always outbreaks that may scare you if they come into your area i know a lot of people who keep daily track of the numbers and who keep track of where there are outbreaks they know if there's an outbreak around me before i do all of these things lead to the news reporting more and more on coronavirus because it gets them more and more views And not only do they report more and more on it, but they focus on the things that lead to fear because that fear will get more people to watch them. And I'm not saying, I say that the way I said that makes it sound like they're trying to manipulate you. That's not what I mean. It's also the thing that keeps their attention, right? They're people. They see this. This scares them. It gets their attention. They then share it. It scares people. It keeps their attention. We don't have to assume the worst in the news people. All I'm suggesting is that the fear grabs people's attention. And as it does, you get more and more viewers, and that gets more people's attention, which leads the news to reporting even more on it, creating this feedback loop. And it happens in any time there's a big, scary crisis. This is how it happens. It escalates. And you can go back and you can look at, um, I think of the, the Ebola crisis because it you know, shared a disease thing. And the bird flu, swine flu, these things all caused a great deal of fear. All got a lot of news time. For, a, for quite a while, not nearly as long as COVID-19. Um, those fears, the, other, the fears for those other things in a lot of ways never really materialized. Obviously, there has been a lot of things that have materialized with coronavirus. 
um, a lot of things that are happening that can be reported on. Wars are another good example. The way wars work, there's fear and there's anger there. And when you've got those things, the news reports on it and they report on it more and more people watch. And, and we become unified in some sense by this, right? We're all following it. Everybody is listening to COVID-19. As Brad suggested, this is, this is partially why we haven't talked about this yet and why, why in, in some ways we didn't want to because it's always there in front of you. But that fear and that, that having this big event changes the incentives or rather focuses the incentives of news on this subject perpetually. And then there's one more piece of this that's really interesting that makes this all worse. And it's that right now, and always to a degree, but even more so than, I don't know, more so than ever is what I want to say, but I have, I really have very little baseline to judge it. Republicans and Democrats hate and fear each other. Democrats talk about how afraid they are that a Republican is in office and that he'll continue to be in office. Republicans do the same thing about Democrats. So you have two factions that already fear each other. Mm -hmm. As soon as COVID-19 hits, they can't agree with each other on how to address it. They take stands that are opposites of each other, as they do in everything. They plant their flag. This is our cause. Our cause says this. Their cause says this. Even though we had very limited information when it started, and there they stand, and they stand there even as information changes. And it's, it just, it ends up with us getting news, but not getting news on the useful things, not getting news on the data. I mean, we get news on data, but you can pick from the data. There's, there's massive amounts of data out there. And anyway, it just leads to this, it leads to this, uh, the partisan aspect of the f combined with the fear. In a lot of ways, I feel like we're not that far off from the Japanese internment thing. When you get fear, you create a group that's the other, right? There's there's you and there's the things you're fighting and everything associated with them. And that's why you end up in World War II throwing Japanese American citizens into internment camps. You've created this other, this monster that you fear. Your fear does that. It's one of the costs of fear. And it's really helpful if you're being robbed or you're being attacked. But in these situations, when there's these partisan lines, I have to begin to wonder how useful it is in those circumstances. You know, that gives me a lot of thoughts. You know, my, my first thought is, you know, when you talk about the news, that, that sounds amazing. Be, not amazing, that sounds so true. It resonates with me. Amazing is the wrong word. It resonates with me because, you know, for example, no one wants to hear about crime. No one wants to hear about some some person who was stabbed 63 times, you know, or or whatever. No one wants to hear about that 11-car pileup on the freeway. But the news shares that information because, number one, we are, we are concerned about what's going on in the world around us, and we do want to know what threats are out there. And knowing about a murderer, knowing about a, a dangerous section of the freeway, is useful information, but it's more than that. It is the fact that it gets my attention. You know, I'm not interested in it, but when I see that headline, it's hard for me not to click on it. Right. And and so, of course, the media, the the news will cover 
those things that get my attention. That is their job. Their job is to is to find things that are newsworthy and share them. So I I totally understand what you're saying there. When you talk about about the government and about about partisan stands, it's interesting because before coronavirus, I I I thought that partisan stands were already so far separated that it was almost impossible to see a resolution. Yeah, or to see any I kind mean, of agreement. I, yeah. I think everyone knows someone in their family who refuses to talk politics amongst family because they know there's going to be disagreement and that there is no way to create that resolution and they don't want it tearing their family apart because families do get torn apart because of people being on the opposite political sides of things. Yeah, and families, it, it, friendships it definitely end. lends testament to what you're saying about how much fear and of course, a natural result of fear is anger and hostility that is generated that is generated by that. And it's something that we have definitely seen in terms of COVID-19. Yeah, yeah. If you can come to a society and you, you have COVID-19, a virus, and it spreads in certain ways, it affects certain people. There's we can we can statistically map a lot of these things. Now we don't have obviously we had very little data initially. We had some things from China that weren't going to reflect how it behaved in, in the other world, but it was all we had. And so we make predictions off that, etc. We don't have perfect information, but COVID-19 is a real thing in the world. And if I can tell you, based on your political alignment, what you think about COVID-19, something is terribly wrong. Your political principles have nothing to do with COVID-19 and how it functions. But yet there it is. You can find, you can predict based on political alignment, what people think of a disease. It's, it, mm -hmm. it's at that point, there's a huge disconnect from reality. That shouldn't be possible. It, should, it shouldn't and, be possible. <laughs> and what's more interesting is that the Republican and Democratic parties do not have platforms about virus response. You know, I, know, I know what someone would say to what you just said, mm -hmm. and they would say, yeah, but that's because of how they responded or how uh -huh. we responded uh -huh. and how they've been upset about yeah. it. But, but the reality is, is that whether you're a Republican or whether you're a, you're a Democrat or whether you're, you're, you're none of the above – does not really affect in terms of what you believe about how the United States should respond to a virus or even how deadly that virus is or anything like that. Right. There's no reason for that to, to influence that decision, right. and yet it has. And yet it has. To the point yeah. that people based off of their political party are more or less scared of getting sick from the virus itself. And that is fascinating because that's not even talking about their response. That's just talking about, you know, we talked about fear earlier. Their fear about a risk out there is based off of their political views, not based off of the facts of how deadly the virus yeah. is and how likely it is that they're going to get it. Yeah. And, and I'm sure if you're listening to this, what you're probably thinking is, well, it's because the other party's dumb. <laughs> Right. That's that's what that's how this passes on. The other party is the other. They're the ones that have it all wrong and they're and that's the way it is. But that is the mindset that says all the Japanese, including the ones that are American citizens, have a problem. That's that's the one that creates monsters 
out of human beings because only a monster could be as wrong as they are, could be as evil as they are. Anyway, we're, we're digressing a little bit from COVID-19 because this is just such a strange point. And I think it speaks to the heart of where America is now in a lot of ways. It speaks to why discussing COVID-19 is much harder than it should be. We don't need a political discussion. Now, if you want to argue on political principles about how we should address COVID-19, that's, that's one thing. That's a political question. But arguing about the facts of it based on political alignment is bizarre. I, I couldn't agree more. And the interesting thing and, the, and really the important thing and the reason we've been talking about this fear and this feedback loop and this distortion is that it gets in the way of what's actually going on. Because as you put it earlier, Dan, what's actually going on is not really partisan at all. It is simply a natural disaster, like a hurricane or a tornado. Yeah. yeah. And so what we need to do is we need to find as much information as we possibly can about the virus. We want to know what the virus is going to do, things we can do to combat the virus and move from there, right? Yeah, you get... That seems like the logical solution. That is the logical solution. Can I give the example you gave me as if it's my idea? You 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 tell you know me. What? Go right ahead. <laughs> I'm just uh, I'm gonna quote uh, my co-host here, Brad. Uh, by quote, I mean paraphrase because <laughs> I there's no way I'd quote this story. But but it was so brilliant the way you framed it. This is like this is like there's a forest fire approaching a village, and the Republicans decided. We'll say in this case, the Republicans all decided that the forest fire was so dangerous that everybody had to evacuate, and the Democrats decided the forest fire was was so harmless that everybody should stay home. If you saw that happening, you'd go, wait a second, is this about the forest fire or is this about politics? Because it looks, mm -hmm. with, with such a clean divide, it looks like it's about politics. But it doesn't make any sense to be talking politics when we're talking about how dangerous a forest fire is, let alone how dangerous a virus is. I mean, this is... These things, like you said, it's a, this is a natural disaster. And you know what's so fascinating about that analogy? Because I don't know who gave that analogy, but it was oh, brilliant. You, somebody that brilliant analogy, did. <laughs> the reason I gave that analogy, sorry, I, I couldn't help but pat myself on the back. You did it earlier. I felt like I deserved <laughs> yeah, a turn. You, you deserve two, apparently. One from me and then another <laughs> another from you in case you forgot while I was telling it. This was this was Brad. Uh, Oh I'll pat goodness. you again later, too, Anyways, I'll mention. Do you guys remember Thank that? you. I appreciate that. <laughs> no, the reason that's so interesting is it doesn't matter in any given moment if the view that no one should evacuate their homes or everyone should evacuate their homes is right based off of the forest fire's condition in that moment. Because forest fires, like so many natural events, natural disasters, are fluid. You know, one day the fire could be within miles of a neighborhood and then it could go somewhere else. You know, there are yeah. changes, there are flows. The wind picks up and, and it changes so, the situation entirely in a matter of hours. Yeah, you shouldn't have a policy platform that says never evacuate or always evacuate because neither of those make sense for the situation. Right. You're not going to literally evacuate the entire state of California if there's a forest fire in Southern California. You're going to make decisions based off of the facts and your best judgment to protect people, right? Yeah. And that, and that decision has to be willing to change as the data changes. It does. You have to be adaptable in these things. And that's, 
Now, you may agree or disagree with certain approaches based on principles, based on uh, on ideas you have about how economics works or, or beliefs you have about politics and political principles. But that's not what we're discussing. That's not what's in dispute here. What's in dispute is whether whether fire is dangerous. Or <laughs> it's very different. And what's weird is that the political parties staked out their positions very early when we had very preliminary data. And so at that point, mm-hmm. you're, the odds that you are right at that point in your assumptions about how dangerous it's going to be ultimately, it's literally a gamble. You know, it's, it's just playing the odds. You may be right. But if yeah, you're it's rolling but the if dice. you're right, it's it's coincidence that it just happened to align perfectly with what you interpreted from the data at that time. Like you said, it's literally rolling the dice. And so to stake those positions and then to hold them at all costs is the kind of thing the only <laughs> I'm gonna be nicer than what I was about to say. It's the kind of thing the the only <laughs> groups who have vested their pride and their political power in would do because it's that's what it's about it's about face right it's about it's about votes and that's why the political parties can't back down even if the data changes contrary to to what they think or even if it turns out to be very different and it, we have harped a lot on the political parties and the reason we are is is not because we have an issue with with members of those political parties from the contrary the reason we've harped on it so much is because members of both political parties are getting caught up in something that I don't think either of them ever really wanted to. And that's what we were trying to talk about with the incentives for both the news and the government officials is the fact that these kind of incentives just kind of happened naturally as a situation evolved and people found themselves in these positions. And that's... And that's not, and so we're not passing judgment on either political party. What we are passing judgment on is when you let partisan politics get in the way of reality and when you start distorting in order to sort serve your own political ends, especially when you're a political leader. Sorry, I slurred my words there a little bit, but that's when it becomes an issue. With that, do you want to give us some stats about the way it actually is, Brad? Thankfully, things aren't as bad as they had looked initially. Now they could get worse with a second wave. They, things could change. I mean, we're doing this in, uh, at the end of June. As Brad indicated, the, the situation is dynamic. And so we're not going to assume that what we have now is permanent or is, or is completely accurate. That would be a mistake. But what we do have paints a very different picture than what we had initially. And the reason we're bringing up these stats is because we do want to point out the fact there's real data out there to be found, and we're not afraid to share that data, even though half of the people out there may say, oh, well, that clearly shows that they're here, and this is what they believe about this and this and that, and that's not it at all. You know, I I want to share some data and actually a quote from the CDC website, because as far as, uh, as sources for information in this crisis... I don't think I trust anyone more than I trust the CDC because this is literally what they do. You know, they are the center for disease control and their and their job is to gather information and find solutions for diseases all the time. They've been doing it for for years and years and years and this crisis is just another case of them doing that. And so looking at that data is helpful because it's helpful for us 
when we are looking to understand our fear and then the facts that are causing that fear so we can reevaluate our own fear and our own choices and see where we stand. Yeah, especially since these stats, like like there are complex forms of stats that you would want to double check and be careful with. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the things that we're going to go through are, are fairly basic numbers, you know, just based on they're getting reports of who died, who's, you know, how many people have tested positive, those kind of things. And so reporting those things is pretty straightforward. There's not a lot of, there's not a lot of uh, area for those things to go wrong, though in the collection process, it, we do still have limits on how accurate it can be. If that makes sense. It does make sense. It does make sense. So, <laughs> I hope it makes this, sense this, to you. This... No, it makes sense to you. I hope it makes sense to everybody else. <laughs> I was speaking for the audience. <laughs> Good. Trying to give them a voice, so you're welcome. Good. Good. While you're at it, tell us how we're doing. Oh, we're doing fantastic. Good. Good to hear that from the audience. <laughs> and this is my favorite podcast, and I will I will listen to you forever, no matter how many times you pat yourself on the back on any given episode. Okay, so the CDC on their website, they, they say, and I quote, based on death certificate data, the percentage of deaths attributed to pneumonia, influenza, or COVID-19, and they group those three deaths categories together because they're very similar, decreased from 9.5% during week 24 to 6.9% during week 25. This is the ninth week during which a declining percentage of deaths due to PIC, pneumonia, influenza, or COVID-19, has been recorded. However, the percentage remains above the epidemic threshold. The percentage may change as additional death certificates for death during recent weeks are processed. And then when you actually look at some of those numbers, and here I'm going to go to a table, and underneath that table they explain that it takes a week or two for this information to be uploaded. Makes so sense. when we look at the most recent weeks in June, the information is not going to be quite up to date. But the farther back you go, you're going to get much more complete data. Mm -hmm. And and so you, you look at this data and you can see as the numbers rose, you know, from from merely a handful of deaths that were caused by, and this is just deaths involving corona. This is not the PIC I mentioned earlier. So deaths just involving corona, you know, are in the handfuls in February. Then in March, they rise up until at the end of March, you have 3,000, then 3,000 deaths in a week. Then April, you have 9,000, almost 16,000, over 16,000. And that's uh, the 18th of April. And that's actually when it peaked. Then it drops down to 14,000, a little under 12,000, a little under 11,000, a little under 9,000, a little under 7,000, a little under 6,000, and then 4,000, and then 2,500. And then this last week ending on the 20th, which is the most recent week they have updated, was 906. So first of all, take that 906 very seriously. That, that one in the week before hasn't been fully updated. So what I'd like to look at is going from 16,000 in April down to 4,000 on the 6th of June. You know, so that was several weeks ago. And so that number has been pretty well updated. It may raise a little, but it's not raising up to 16,000. Right. And so you can see here where, where there has been a surge and it has quickly dropped off from that surge. And things do look a lot better than they did before. Interesting. So, and that's deaths. We're just talking deaths there. Meanwhile, mm -hmm. 
And obviously the parallel to that, the other piece we need to know in the puzzle. So deaths went up. They spiked in April, you said, April 24th-ish? April 18th. April 18th. 16,000? 16,357 deaths in one week. Deaths in one week. Okay. And then it's been decreasing ever since to where just a few weeks ago you were saying it's about 4,000? Yeah, and that was the 6th of June. It dropped down to 4,138. Okay. I'm with you. And the other piece of the data, that's what I was going to say, take a drink of water. Uh, so the other piece we need to know is exposure rates over those times, right? Because um, obviously mm-hmm. deaths deaths by themselves tell us nothing about the lethality of it or about the danger or about the spread, those kind of things, unless we know the other piece, which is exposure rate. Yeah, and that's where... And that's where it has been so interesting as I as I look at this because the water is so muddy when it comes to this information and every number I look at is different. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. and I don't know if you have a good number you'd like I, to, I to, don't. to reference. I don't. I, I found all the same problems you did with it. It's just, it's just so hard because it, you either accept that you are going to use only the cases that tested positive which of course you need to modify by by the odds that the positive tests are actually false positives, which is something you can gather. Um, I don't know if they have that number yet, but that's something you can gather. Most diseases, if you when you have tests, you're going to have false positive tests, and calculating you've got to calculate that in if you're going to figure out how many people actually have it. But then you also need to figure out how many people have it who you haven't tested, and mm-hmm. ultimately that number at best, is a very good guess, right? It's a very, (laughs) which is hard. So some people will just say, you know, we're not going to worry about that. We're just going to go with people we know have tested positive. And they may take into account false positives or they may not. And then others will try and make predictions. And if you're going to, once you get into the realm of the predictions where you're like, okay, judging on how it spreads, judging on how these things have happened in areas where we have tested well, maybe we can guess the numbers and some of these others. The number is going to vary a lot. Long way of saying that, yes. And it's interesting because I, I did research and and that's not unique to coronavirus. No. So yeah. every year there's an there's an influenza season. And every year the CDC calculates a mortality rate. So how how many people are infected, how many of those are going to die, uh-huh. right? And that calculation, they actually have a formula where they have this many tested. And they believe, and they have data to support it, but it's just a belief, an estimation, a guess, a very well thought out guess, but still a guess, that for every number who test positive, there are this many who haven't been tested who also have. I was just going to say that the flu is a little bit more predictable in that we have many years of experience with it. And so... Of data uh, that that they can look at and they can go off. And and that's what they're going to craft that formula out of. That formula is going to be particular to that to that disease and the flu varies a little bit but but in its in how it's contagious and things it's very it's much more it's it's more stable don't miss don't mishear that it's more stable it's not stable but it's more stable than than some of these other things and and uh coronavirus we just don't have those years that we can draw on for that formula now that doesn't mean we have no information you know you'll probably remember last month and it may have been a few weeks earlier when the the data was first collected but for example there's an article in the mercury news talks about a stanford researcher 
who who posted who who published that the coronavirus may not be as deadly as was originally thought and this is back in may and he did that by looking at you know you, you can look at the antibody tests you know there were some antibody tests done in california trying to figure out how many people may have gotten coronavirus without ever getting tested for it right? right because now they have this antibody and so when he did that, he placed the fatality rate at between 0.02% to 0.4%, which is far lower than the 1% or 2% or any other numbers that have been that have been thrown around and much closer to the 0.1% rate, which is the death rate for the flu. And obviously more people have died from this than from the flu, but how useful would that information be if we could verify that information? Because there are there are more extensive testing that can be done. And as more people have this antibody and more people have gotten coronavirus, we can get more data on that. But how useful would it be to know that instead of every 100 people who get the disease, one of them dies, if it was every 1,000 people, one of them yeah, dies? Yeah, you can, you can treat – you would treat this very differently. Certainly, exactly. certainly very differently from the 5% or so that we initially thought that was, you know, kind of... That we initially thought because, yeah, because yeah. yeah, the idea of one out of every 20 people is going to die, there aren't many people who have less than 20 people in the group of <laughs> right, people they care right, about. Right. You know what that I mean? Is, that is... Uh, you know, you know, there are probably 40 or 50 people that if they died... That would definitely rock my world to some degree. You know what I mean? It's not something right. I'm going to throw right. off. Right. This would be something that really affects everybody extremely directly. I mean, it does anyway, but even more so, it would be. But anyways, like I said, we're we're bringing up some of these numbers to to illustrate a point. We're not trying to. We're really. I mean, I'm honestly not trying to persuade anyone of the validity of these numbers because it's not about the numbers that we're bringing forward. It's about finding out the numbers. And giving the numbers the time of day that they deserve so that we can find out what yeah. is going on and act accordingly. Yeah. Um, I know that Stanford researcher got a uh, group got a lot of flack. Um, but the CDC numbers that you were indicating, uh, that you mentioned, indicate that the death rate is going down. If, if, if exposures are raising or steady, but deaths per week are going down, that seems like a good thing. And obviously, there's going to be some overlap, right? That's, that's not a clean comparison in that someone may get sick, and then they may die months later, or something like that. You know, probably not months, but they may die later. So the, so it shouldn't mm-hmm. align perfectly. But the numbers should definitely be going up based on the exposure rate. And they have, in fact, gone down. And so it's that's a good thing. Everybody should be happy about that, <laughs> whether it's because yeah, we're treating yeah. people better or not. Field hospitals were an interesting thing that I found as I was researching this. They created 17 different field hospitals in areas that they thought would be hotspots. You know, places like New York, Chicago, Denver, Memphis, Miami Beach. Yeah, the really populated areas. Yes, places where exposure rates were going to be high and uh, and there were and populations are high. Detroit. And in these places... The number of beds available in these places varied quite a bit because one of the worries initially is that that we would quickly overrun the healthcare system. That's still a fear, right? People were still every day we talk about are we pushing the limits of of the hospital bed by the increased exposure rate? Because the worst mm-hmm. thing would be no one no one wants people to get sick and then not have a place to 
to go. That would be that would be terrible. But here's what I found with this was that and, and more importantly, we don't want someone who gets sick and is gets seriously sick and could have been treated to die because they weren't able to get treated and right. to have people die unnecessarily. Right. Right. And and there will be mistakes in the, the chaos of, of a emergency like this, but you want to minimize those as much as you can, obviously. New York had several of them. So a lot of these cost over $100,000. At least several of them cost over $100,000. For a total, these 17 places cost half a billion dollars. One of Wait, the, half a million or half a billion? Half a billion. Yeah. So 660 so, million. So, because you said, you said several hundred thousand dollars per thing, and there's 17 of them, <laughs> and now we're talking 500 million. No, you're correct. So when, I, I, uh, I miss, I'm, yes. What I meant when I said hundreds of thousands of dollars, over a hundred thousand dollars, what I meant was over a hundred million dollars. Thank you for catching that. Oh, Those are very different okay. numbers. We're talking 155 million on one in Stony Brook, New York. Now, that one holds 1,038 wow. beds, right? These are overflow. The idea is, is the hospitals are taxed. They can take patients here, and they'll they'll have the equipment, they'll have the beds, they'll have the place for them, those kind of things. They have seen zero patients. Zero. The one in Stony Brook, New York, has 1,038 beds, zero patients. There's one in Old Westbury, New York, costs $118 million has 1,022 beds, seen zero patients. The one in Chicago has 3,000 beds, three times the size of those first two, has seen 37 patients. Of the times 17... Times like these, I wish I could whistle. <laughs> right, right. This would be appropriate time to do the... the I can't whistle either. We're, we're out of luck. So of the 17, 13 of them have seen zero patients. Wow. Only one of them has seen more. <laughs> Let's see. There's the one that saw 37. There was one that saw six. There's one that saw 39. There was one, the Javits Center, New York City, that saw 1,095 people. One of the 17 was actually used at anything remotely close to its capacity. The other ones, a lot of the other ones have actually closed down and left because they were just not being used. There was just no use for them. And that that is a testament to the uncertainty factor and the lack of information, especially early on, in that we had no idea how bad this was going to get. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Some of them are still being constructed, and I'd be shocked if they're actually finished. There's like uh, four of them that are still, that aren't open yet. But I would be surprised if they ever open. Um, which leads to another problem, uh, kind of a related problem. A lot of hospitals, often by decree at the state level, have closed the, oh no, what's the word I'm looking for? Electoral elective procedures? procedures? Elective procedures. Elective. Thank you. <laughs> elective. That's Not to be confused entirely. with electoral, <laughs> which is, is where our head is in politics, have stopped hospitals from performing elective procedures. Now, you may have heard news about hospitals going broke. That's a really big problem right now. A lot of hospitals are really struggling. And usually how it's framed is hospitals are struggling because they're not being getting enough funding for COVID-19 or because they're, they're not getting paid enough by Medicare for COVID-19 cases or they're not getting some kind of enough reimbursement due to the COVID-19 things that they're treating. 
That is a misdiagnosis of the actual problem. The problem is that they're not performing elective treatments, which are the primary source of income for hospitals. So to say that they are that the problem is they're not getting reimbursed enough for COVID-19 is misleading because the problem is actually that you've cut off their primary source of income. And if you cut off the primary source of income of a very, very expensive business, there should be no shock that it runs into financial hardship almost immediately. If you cut off the primary income of any business, yeah. it's going to run into financial hardship very quickly. And that's something that we've been used to with COVID-19 is businesses struggling because they've been shut down or restricted, but you wouldn't right. think that hospitals would be one of those businesses because you would assume that they're packed to the rafters yeah. and getting all the business they could handle. Right, that they would be full. And that assumption is part of the problem, right? People do not go to the hospitals right now unless they have to. And I mean, like they probably felt that way before COVID-19 and then they cut back a lot because no one wants to go to the mm-hmm. hospital where you may get infected by COVID-19 or so the fear would go, right? Whether that's a reasonable fear or not is another question, but you don't, people are not going to the hospital very often. Most of the staff there do nothing related to COVID-19. Yeah. And so by cutting out their specialties, they're just left twiddling their thumbs. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, what does the ex- x-ray guy do if he can't x-ray people? He's not being used for COVID-19. He doesn't suddenly become a COVID-19 doctor who can go treat people. Who's a specialist in, you know, respiratory right. issues and how to properly use ventilators and care for these kinds right. of what things. Right. What does the foot doctor do? Well, what does he do during this time? The elective surgeries that he would perform, not happening. Now, he may still have, there may still be emergency surgeries that these, some of these specialists deal with, emergent, emergency actions, you know, people come into the... Yeah, into but the emergency reduced. room, those kind of things, but it's going to be significantly lower. Anything that can wait has been held up by this, often by the decree of governor's offices and, and uh, executive orders on the state level, different things like that. So it's not surprising then that hospitals are in, a, are in dire financial straits, despite the fact that they're the things that most people would say we need most right now. <laughs> They're the things that that should mm-hmm. be getting lots of business and lots of attention, as you said. That's just one of those facts that's that's probably very counterintuitive. It it is. It is. It is not something I would have expected before before you told me. But I think that might be a good segue if if you're comfortable with it to talking about navigating risk and what that looks like in this world. And what that means in terms of not just our own decisions, but government policy and kind of taking a look at that. So before before we go too far into this, because it is it is hard to visualize as soon as I say navigating risk, everyone may may fall asleep a little bit (laughs) because that's that is actually a business term that 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 business right. people use if you type in navigating risk <laughs> into a chrome, into your chrome search engine you are going to get a lot of very interesting articles about how to navigate risk as a manager so that your company can thrive in the 21st century <laughs> and i hope you oh, learn a lot that is not what please, i'm talking please about please no please don't fall asleep like i would in that <laughs> class no, we're not talking about that. We're, I'm talking about the risk that we talked about earlier, that there are so many risks that we experience every day and how we respond to those risks is something that we do whether or not we even think about it. And that plays a huge role in how we respond to COVID-19. Now, before we get too far into that, I'd like to 
bring up a parallel. I'd like actually to reference the parallel we brought up earlier, which is World War II. Because once again, World War II is something that everyone knows about and has some interesting, interesting correlations. So I want to talk about World War II rationing because as these resources became more and more scarce during World War II quite quickly, and as more and more efforts were put towards the war, quick decisions had to be made, right? Right. And so you had... You had these boards that were put in charge of rationing. You had a whole bureaucracy that was created very quickly to deal with that, to try and figure out what they could limit and and when they should limit it and how much they should limit it to in order to let the American people be able to survive through this crisis and be able to get the resources they need needed so that no one starved, right? right? Because that was the right. crisis. You don't want to run out of food. And so mm-hmm. they – People started panicking once this, once food supplies start getting low. People are freaking out. Exactly. I mean, what's scarier than that? So, so almost immediately after Pearl Harbor, we began rationing things. You know, we be, we started with sugar. We we added coffee, added meats, added fats, added canned fish, cheese, canned milk, also non-food items. I'm not sure people realize that things like tires gasoline even cars even bicycles which to me was crazy bicycles yeah but that is surprising you, you couldn't even go buy a buy a bike for your kid without without having the rations for it the ration interesting cars. and this was done for a purpose like we described before there was this there's a fight there's something that needs to be done and we need to get there right we need to have the resources we need but as a result of that, the government instituted all these rules, and these were not optional. You know, this was these these were government enforced rations, and those who broke those rationing rules were persecuted. There was a strong push to stop the black market. You know, we talked about black market last week. The black markets that came up as a result of that rationing. Yeah, and yeah, especially when you get the, some of the and, price setting too. They'd fix prices. So here's something you may not have heard about one of the uh, one of the rationing efforts that was done. I'm actually going to quote here from the uh, National World War II Museum. Americans were asked to conserve bread by observing Wheatless Wednesdays during World War I. But during World War II, the government took its rationing a step further. In January 1943, the U.S. War Foods Administration instituted a ban on what had once been advertised as the greatest step forward in the baking industry, pre-sliced bread. I know some of you were thinking Little Caesars with the ads, but no, it was (laughs) pre-sliced bread. The rule was intended to save on wax paper and metal, since pre-sliced bread required more wrapping than a whole loaf to keep it from going stale, the government assumed they could easily conserve paper and curb demand for metal bread slicer parts by having people cut it themselves at home. The public response proved how wrong they were. Bakeries argued that they had more than enough supplies on hand to meet demands, and housewives criticized the law in the media. I should like to let you know how important sliced bread is to the morale and saneness of a household. (laughs) That was a quote from the Housewives Organization. (laughs) Began one woman's letter to the New York Times. Secretary of Agriculture Claude R. Wickard eventually bowed to the pressure and rescinded the ban after only three months. 
admitting the savings are not as much as we expected. And I bring this up because even in a war effort that everyone gets behind, the government can only know so much and can only predict so much, and they're going to make mistakes because they are not on the ground, and they don't know everything that's going on. And so when they try to decide how best to make things come about, there are going to be mistakes that are made. And what's even more interesting about that is that everyone was on board with these rashes. Not everyone, obviously, but the country was rallied together. I mean, you can look look at um, Great Britain. In Great Britain, the British government in 1939 actually just asked the people to to euthanize their pets because they were they were so the resources were so limited. And they were worried about packs of, of roving, starved dogs. And so they just asked the people to put down their pets. And in the span of one week, as many as 750,000 pets were killed by their owners. Oh my gosh, that's insane. I did not know that. I never heard that. That's insane. because, And as, as a dog lover, I understand how much pets mean to people. I mean, they're part of the family. And so the level of commitment you have... You have to, to have that. to do something Not like even that. Required, just asked that's, without that's even insane. being forced to. You were just asked, and they were willing yeah. to to go that far because things were so serious. Versus the American government forcing people to no longer have sliced bread in an effort to save a little paper, and it completely backfiring. And even if it had been successful, as he, they admitted, wasn't actually saving that much. Yeah, and that's that's a really good comparison because that one like you indicated, the, everyone was on board. Not, probably not everyone, but in principle, most people were on board with rationing, which is a big deal. That takes you know they're they're afraid, um, perhaps rightfully so in this this situation. They're they're uh, they're angry about what happened in Pearl Harbor, um, but it's in the particulars that it that it becomes an issue. And it's and it's in the particulars, like like you indicated. That's that's so interesting that the British would do that when asked, because it people I think people assume that just by default that if you don't make people do things, they don't do them. But they won't in, do them in the crisis that unites like that. I think you'd be shocked. I think a lot of people underestimate what people are willing to do in these situations. I'm I'm amazed at how many businesses require masks. A lot of states do not mandate that you wear a mask outside, yet businesses have begun mandating it to the point where I don't know if there's anywhere I could go in the area I'm at where 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 I could actually go into the store without a mask and not have someone send me out, even though masks are not mandated. Mm-hmm. And I would I would follow that further with I remember months ago when. When most businesses didn't require masks, they hadn't quite caught on, but people were still wearing masks. You know, I I, I live in a in a more metropolitan metropolitan area, excuse me, and and so people are are pretty concerned. And so you would have seventy to eighty percent of people around me when I was in a store would be wearing a mask in stores that did not require it and did not have any kind of signs on the door asking people to yeah, wear masks or anything, totally. nothing at all from the business. People were simply choosing to, 
trying to do something. Yeah. You know, and then and then as time goes on, the businesses step up and start doing that as well. Right, it gets organized. And often, mm-hmm. and often long before the government has a chance to respond, individuals and businesses are responding. Yeah. And I think that's awesome. Yeah, it is. I mean, people – I there was no enforced quarantine per se. Uh, and yet, like, like no one's <laughs> – and yeah, in most areas, I, no one is. No, in most areas, you're not going to get arrested for driving around, or for going to the store, or for doing something that is unimportant. Yet, most people quarantine themselves. Now, they may, they may. I know there's a lot of uh, <laughs> a lot of people listening are probably like, no, not really. There, are, there are people who didn't. There are people who go and hang out with their friends and whatnot. But I'm, I'm shocked at how many people didn't even have social contact with close friends who live nearby. Just because they, they were trying to address the risks, they were trying to do things, take responsibility, and 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 not not get coronavirus. Like I said, a lot of people take an initiative. I can speak to that because you know, for for a good month and a half, me and 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 my wife and our little baby, you know, I went to work, I would go to the store, and that was it. You know, we we went on some hikes and we'd we'd walk the neighborhood and. We'd play in the backyard, but we we canceled trips to visit family who was just a few hours away. Um, we we canceled several things mm-hmm. because, and not because I was concerned about us getting sick, but really because I was concerned about us getting others sick. You know, especially family members, and we didn't want to expose yeah expose them. To yeah, them. yeah. I know some people with with enough health issues that I would I'd be absolutely horrified if I accidentally gave it to them. And so right, right. That's a scary idea. It is. I would feel guilty. I, would, I wouldn't feel like I murdered them, but I would feel like I was partially responsible. My negligence had done something to, yeah, to harm people I love. That would be something that would be hard to live with. Yeah, would be would be sad. And which is interesting because what we're talking about here is actually how we chose to navigate that risk. You know what I mean? How we chose to deal with this dangerous element out there and how much of that risk in that element was acceptable to us. Yeah. You know, because everyone, everyone is different in how much risk they're willing to accept and how worried they are about any particular risk. You know, for example, I, I am, I am, I have a slight fear of heights. Um, my, I, Okay, I, I, I do have a, a heights phobia. I don't know why I'm trying to defend myself here. Why are you trying to put it diplomatically like you're going to offend people who aren't afraid of heights offend or something? Offend people telling them. Yeah, exactly. So so I, I have a fear of heights. And so so every time I go somewhere, I notice how, how high like guardrails are in particular. You know, on any second story balcony, I notice how hard that high that guardrail is and how easy it would be to fall over. <laughs> That's interesting. And and personally, I wish that guardrails were a good six inches to a foot higher than they are. Just across Just the board. Just in general. That would make me feel way safer and way more comfortable, especially when someone I love is standing near that railing. It it gives me the heebie-jeebies. <laughs> I, I see that but, now with that I have kids, but that's a different – that's an entirely different thing, yeah. No, and, and, and yeah, if, 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 if someone's holding, holding my baby next to that railing, I, 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 that's a whole nother thing. <laughs> but anyways, now just because I have that level of risk, you know, there's, there's two solutions. The one solution is I stay away from that railing and I, when I'm holding my baby, I don't put that baby anywhere near that railing, right? Right. 
And that's my way of handling that risk. But the other way you could handle it is I could start a movement to try and get the government to require that railings be, you know, nine inches taller than these current railings, whatever the current law yeah. is, because clearly it's a set level because the it never gets lower than a certain point. Right, right. right. There's a there's and a minimum. I should have the government mm-hmm. require that they be nine inches to a foot higher so that I am comfortable with that risk. But where is the justification for that when other people are clearly comfortable accepting that risk? Why do I have the right to enforce my comfort level with risk on everyone else? Right. Yeah. And, and in that case, I don't think there would be a justification. Now, people might disagree yeah. if what you could do, if what you did is you went through the data and you could demonstrate that if you raised it a foot higher, it would help a lot of people or something like that. That that would change some minds. But it wouldn't change my mind. It wouldn't change my mind in saying that it would be wrong for me to do that. Right. Now, if I wanted to go to those businesses and say, hey, I'm worried about your railing and I may not come to these businesses again unless you raise them just FYI and they choose to raise them to get my business, that would be totally different. Or if it's in my own home, I'm going to go ahead and raise those railings because right. I can't. If you're my friend and you keep coming over to my house and it bothers you or something like that. Yeah. I say, if exactly. you were my friend, that was a weird way to begin that. Um, <laughs> if I liked you more, I, Brad, and I had a rail at my house, I might raise it just for you. <laughs> Hopefully we will reach that level of friendship. <laughs> Hopefully. We'll see. I'm doubtful. <laughs> or maybe you can live on only one story, you know, whatever works. <laughs> whatever works. People become keenly aware of risk when it's in front of them. People, everyone in the world <laughs> has an opinion right now on what's okay for other people to do and what's not okay for other people to do in relation to coronavirus based on the risk that it causes. Brad's example is really good because it simplifies it a little bit and, and it helps us show some other sides of it. And when you think of like heights and how you behave around heights, you are literally making decisions about risk constantly, constantly. You're making decisions about the risk of how you're going to do on that test based on how much you study. You're making decisions about risk when you drive, the way you drive, how sharp are your turns? What, do you go the speed limit? Do you go a little over? Do you go under? What are you doing with the speed limit? Are you, uh, how, how often have you checked your car? That's a, that's an important risk factor, right? If you're, if something goes wrong with your car, mm-hmm. it cause a lot of problems. It could even cause your death. Are you, are you looking into the maintenance of your car? That's a risk. How much time do you spend looking both ways before you cross the road? You know, that's a risk. How do you yeah. walk? Depending on how you walk, you may be more or less likely to fall. You know, when you run, are you listening to music? Or are you just paying, are you paying more attention to your surroundings? Every single one of these is a decision about risk that you've made based on your comfort level and based on your understanding of the situation. And the same for the same reason, Brad doesn't feel comfortable mandating his fear of heights on everyone else. And trying to address that risk as if it's everybody's risk uh, or it's everybody's opinion on the risk. For that same reason, it would be silly to mandate behavior with listening to music while people jog or to mandate behavior uh, so that you have to drive exactly 70 miles an hour when it says 70 miles an hour. Like you can take this, this principle 
we're so focused on COVID-19, the risk seems so great that we've blown it out of proportion in some ways, but everybody is making decisions on risk all the time and they don't mandate those, what is acceptable for them on other people, nor should they, nor should you. If someone's comfortable with a different level of risk, you should allow them to take that risk. And this is where it gets to the, the big pushback that, that I know anyone listening to this and paying enough attention is going to have. They're going to say, but wait, how other people behave affects me. So your decisions about risk affect me. And when they affect me, they should be regulated. Well, how would you respond to that, Brad? Oh, I, I would be so happy to respond to that because I would say, uh, yeah, those railings and how low they are definitely affect me. There is anyone who argues that those railings don't affect me. I, I would like to hear your arguments because, because just because, you know, you're not, you're not concerned about those railings doesn't mean that those railings aren't there and aren't lower than I'd like them to be. But I have to make a choice when I when I travel and when I go to places that have railings about what I'm willing to accept. And the honest answer is that there are lots of places that I would not like to to be that have those railings. And I'm going to avoid those areas in order to avoid that risk because everything we do affects everyone else. And that is simply the nature of being in a community, right? right? That everything in we we do has some kind of indirect effect. When we talked about the war on drugs last week, we talked about how when when Dan was eating those hallucinogenic berries, he produced less, right? right? And so I couldn't trade with him. And that's an effect that happened. And that's a real effect even though it's indirect. Just like someone who bid, builds a railing that I'm not comfortable with is affecting me if I'm leaning on that railing, however indirectly it is. But there's a difference between you being at risk whenever you are around people and whenever you're around railings or any other thing and people directly harming you. And that's where the difference is. Because, Because when someone has the chance of getting you sick, even though they don't even know they're infected... That's been going on for years and years. Yeah. Every time there's flu season, anyone around you could have the flu and they could theoretically get you sick. Anyone around you could have any number of contagious diseases, even if it's just a cold and you happen to have a pre-existing condition that might make that cold dangerous or harmful to you. Are you saying that it is your, it is my responsibility, it is everyone's responsibility to make sure that no one puts any other person other under any risk? Or rather, are we going to say that it is the government's responsibility to make sure that no one else directly harms someone else? Yeah. Because those are your two choices. Right. Either the government is going to protect us from all risks. And if the government's going to protect us from all risks, what does that look like? You know, Dan mentioned speed limits for cars. I don't think Dan's going far enough. Because if you really want to stop accidents from happening, there is only one solution when it comes to traffic accidents. That is stop people from driving. Yeah, you stop people from doing anything that would cause risk. That is risk. the only way. If you want to stop these falling accidents 
you know, you need to stop people from hiking. You need to stop most sports need to stop. Um, alcohol needs to be banned again. Um, what else? I mean, there are so many things right. for sure. We'd have to ban most junk food because of, you know, I mean, there are oh, the number of people, 647,000 people died from heart disease in 2017. 169,000 people died from accidents. 83,000 died from diabetes. I mean, those numbers are huge. Yeah. And and this happens every year. All these people are dying from things that could be prevented and the government could step in and stop that from happening. Right. And that's that's the thing that people is, aren't is seeing. Is that what yeah. we want? Yeah. You, you focus on COVID-19 and you see the risks every day and you see how it may affect you. And so it's it's natural to take that and to say, we got to stop this because it's it's frightening. But really, if that's the role, if that's what government should be doing, there are other things that should be addressed. COVID-19 will go away. Ho- hopefully, maybe it will. <laughs> but COVID-19 is really not <laughs> the biggest threat. If what you want to do is reduce risk, if you want government managing risk, I, I want to know, I want to know what you're going to use it what what's going to be your baseline? How fatal does it have to be? How how harmful does it have to be? What do the odds have to be that you break your arm in an activity for government to ban it? How do you how do you even begin to set up some kind of criteria to determine what's an acceptable level of risk for me? How do you how do you even begin to do that? And as we noted with with the other things, every action you take, everything you outlaw, everything you try and and uh and deal with. You, you want to outlaw alcohol? You may make things worse. You may reduce alcohol and make a number of other things worse. How do you, how do you play with the lives of billions of people in the world and, and not have unintended consequences that are at least as harmful? Like, like go ahead and try and ban sports. Let's see what happens. I guarantee yeah. <laughs> the results of banning sports would be worse than the problems that they have. And just like just like banning alcohol ended up being worse than the problems of alcohol itself. And in there's a number of other cases like this where as soon as you try and manage risk, you end up creating other problems. And often those problems are going to be worse than what you're trying to solve. And I would take it one step farther and say even if we could, you know, we talked about that utopia idea before, even if there was such utopia where if the government banned something, it ceased to happen, where if the government passed a law, everyone it obeyed it. to work perfectly somehow. If that's the case, if we assume that and we implement all of these things to make sure that no one gets hurt, what would society <sighs> right. look like? We would well, have taken away the majority of activities that bring joy, that bring entertainment, that bring human connection away. And is that something that would really be worth it? You know, assuming that that we could. Yeah. Who would want that? Yeah. Who, who wants to live in that world where there is, where you're not allowed to take any risk? That would be, and, and beyond, aside from the fact it's impossible, even just theoretically, it would be, if it were possible somehow, because everything really brings risk in some form or another and cost. But in that world, you would be so bored. You would never learn. You would never grow. You would never uh, improve. You would never, it would just be, it would be a stifled world. It wouldn't be a human world. 
part of being a human being is living in a world where you make where risks are a constant. And if you want to interact with other human beings in this world, there are risks. You may get sick from them. One of them may be violent suddenly and, and shoot you or <laughs> steal from you or or be mm-hmm. careless with their car and run you over. You may be in the wrong place at the wrong time and get struck by lightning for going outside. Does that mean you shouldn't go outside? There's there's you could we can and we could multiply this indefinitely, right? Listing risks that you're so used to dealing with that you don't even see them, some of which are much higher and much worse than COVID-19. Yet, because of the novelty of COVID-19, we feel like we're talking about something completely different. But to speak directly to one of the to the objection of COVID-19 about risk is that you actually can minimize that risk to a great deal. You have a lot of power, just like Brad doesn't have to go close to the edge. You don't actually have to leave your house. We live in a we live in an age where you can get groceries brought to you. Now maybe you have to go for some kind of emergency of some kind. In which case even then there are things you can do. Right. And I didn't bring that up earlier because I wanted to focus on the principle, but but that aside, I mean COVID-19 is interesting because you know they talk about one of the number one ways that it spread is not by contact with things with with physical objects that were touched by someone who had it. It's not by walking by someone who had it. It's by talking face to face with someone who's close to you and particulates going from your face to their face. And the amazing thing about that is what we're talking about is close conversation and close conversation is almost always consensual. Right. No one's forcing that on you necessarily. Exactly. And so if your number one priority is to avoid getting sick with coronavirus and you have to go out, maybe it's your job and you won't have money yeah, without it. You've got to go to the hospital. You there are stabbed yourself. Or you're having or you a heart have attack to go to the something. hospital or, or you live in an area where they don't deliver groceries and you have to go to the store. There are so many things you can do there, regardless of what everyone else does yeah. that can protect yeah. you. And, and a lot of the people who want, want major mandates to manage the risk of coronavirus do not take the actions that would indicate that they are as fearful of it as they they seem to claim like you like like that's a that's I, a great point i when i walk down the street it's possible that the car coming behind me swerves and hits me on the sidewalk but you're not going to find me glancing constantly over my shoulder and walking onto the grass off the sidewalk every time a car comes by you know it's a it's a it's too inconvenient and if that seems and if that seems lazy just take a look at your own behavior. Like <laughs> we all do this all the time and rightfully so. You can't live your life in that kind of paranoid place where everything is going to go bad all the time. It will, it will literally kill you, which is ironic. You'll be stressed and that stress will decrease your lifespan. <laughs> It'll literally, it will, yeah. your mind literally, you will literally live less, less long and be less healthy if you are more frequently fearful. Which is kind of an ironic thing because it's like the human being a human is structured in such a way that if you were to try and do that, it would be worse for you. Again, another trade off. You'd end up killing yourself faster mm-hmm. by being paranoid about risks. But hopefully, hopefully, what we're suggesting is clear. the The principle we've we've illustrated in a number of ways and challenged ideas in a number of ways. I don't think Brad would be better at managing my risk, the risks I take in my life, than I would. And I don't think a panel of experts 
would be better at managing risk of any particular individual than they would be. Because that individual is built differently. They have different preferences. They have different tolerances for different risks. They have, uh, and they have different, they're in different situations. That's the thing that kills me about this is that some people, if you make a general rule, your general rule is going to make a number of people worse off because of it. There are people who need to go to work. Their, their life is going to be much worse because they can't go to work than even if you guaranteed that they got coronavirus. Guaranteeing that they got coronavirus would be much better for them. But they're not able to make that judgment for themselves. They're not able to weigh that for themselves if you're going to mandate it for everybody. As we've talked about, there are so many risks. If you're going to start mandating that one, why just that one? Why not all of them? Why don't we take this to, you know, how do you, how do you decide? How do you measure? How do you determine whether the risk is worth it or not? And especially when you're working on limited data and limited information, and you just don't know all the people you're, you're working that you're trying to work out this equation for. And there's one more thing I wanted to say about this navigating risk and the fact that we view coronavirus risk so differently when we really shouldn't. I read this most amazing article just a couple of days ago. It's this article. It's a St. George is a community in southern Utah. And and I'm going to read a quote from their newspaper. Dr. Patrick, Dr. Patrick Carroll medical director of Dixie Regional, said Friday that the hospital's ICU was moments away from exceeding its capacity earlier in the week. The hospital has 32 intensive care unit beds. It's obviously a smaller community. But as a contingency to create a temporary surge ICU, that may be able to accommodate up to 89 ICU beds, so they can increase it significantly. But with most COVID-19 patients needing an average of 30 days in the ICU, even that surge capacity may fill quickly. And then here's the quote from, from Dr. Patrick. We have more ICU patients with COVID than we've ever had. A third of ICU patients are in there because of COVID in addition to the normal number of patients, Carol said. We came very close this week to opening a surge ICU. We want to have that ICU bed available when you are playing on that four-wheeler and get in an accident, end quote. And what I thought was so amazing is that Dr. Carroll is saying we need people to do something. You know, we need people to wear masks, to to to, to um, social distance, to isolate, so that they don't get coronavirus and have to use an ICU bed. And in the same sentence, he endorsed people to go play on their four wheelers, even though he realizes that if you are on your four wheeler, uh, St. George is a desert community. Everyone owns a four wheeler. <laughs> it's a wealthy area. Yeah. That if you're on that four wheeler and you get an accident, you could end up in that same ICU bed. He didn't say, Hey guys, we're running out of ICU beds. Um, socially distance, wear masks. Um, please, if there's no reason to, to play on your four-wheeler because we don't have enough beds for it. Also, please be careful when you're driving and just be cautious because we do not have an ice, enough ICU beds and we need to keep yeah. them empty. He didn't say that. He only cared about coronavirus. Yeah, yeah. And, that's how, and that's how the news acts. It acts like this is the only risk that we're going to address right now. Everything else is a given. Everything else is just the way the world is, and we can't change anything about it. But we can change how we behave around the coronavirus. But you're you're absolutely right. That like, that actually it's a that better way to vision. free up beds. Yeah, a better way to free up beds might be to reduce other things. Actually, instead of change behavior in regards to coronavirus, it's a, it's a 
And it's because we think so poorly and infrequently about risk in the terms that we're putting it that, yeah, it's tunnel vision. Like you said, it's that fear. It's that fear. We focused on this one thing. And in a lot of ways, we're missing the bigger picture. And we're certainly missing the principle, which is that managing risk is ultimately, at the end of the day, only effective at an individual level. Only effective at an individual level. You can't have the information. No general rule could possibly suffice. And yet, if you leave it to the people and you give them good information, you may be surprised. They may be willing to kill all their dogs. <laughs> they may be willing as the British yeah, did. If that's the, what it takes. If that's what it takes. And they can change other behaviors. That's the thing. Like, like people aren't, we're stuck in this box. We're stuck in reacting to a threat. Mm-hmm. And as such, our, our solutions are really, really narrow. They're too narrow to be effective and to be reasonable. And we're stuck with this idea that only the government can respond. Yeah. That only yeah. the government has the power to do anything, that individuals can't do something, even though most of the significant changes that have been made have been made by individuals and businesses and not by government. We're stuck in the mindset that either everybody does it or it doesn't matter. And that's just not true. You only interact with a small number of people in any given day. And if you want to reduce your risk and, and stay home and do these other things, that number drops dramatically. You can drop it to zero. And you will pretty, be much, right, much safer. Right, and you'll be much safer. And if that's the best trade-off for you, go ahead and do that. Especially if you know that the hospital beds are getting full. If the hospital beds are actually getting full, maybe you shouldn't go four-wheeling. Maybe uh, that's a... Uh-huh. It's a small example, but maybe you maybe you got to do other things to reduce other risks. Similarly, similar to World War II, if the hospital beds are full, there are other ways we can adapt as well. It's not like there are X number of beds in the world, X number of ventilators. Um, we've done a lot to adjust to it. We actually haven't come close to filling the capacity. Yeah, anyway, there's there's so much more that could be said, but so much more that there, can be said about COVID nineteen. There's always <laughs> more to be said. <laughs> Trying to limit the discussion on risk. And, and maybe in, and maybe in this case, I mean, obviously there were. I mean, I know for one, I got, I got a little on the ranty side, and that's because I, I feel very strongly, and I'm very close to it. You know, because everyone's close to it because it affects everyone, and so I understand, I understand where people are coming from. I understand. Like I said, when I talked about the two parties, I am not upset at the party members. I am not upset at at the American people for how they're responding. I understand. I understand where people are coming from. But just because we've been doing it a certain way doesn't mean it needs to continue that yeah. way. You know, and and just because we have an initial reaction of fear doesn't mean we have to stay afraid. And it doesn't mean we can't evaluate our fear and take a look at this virus and the threat that it poses to me, to my family, to my loved ones, and look at what I can do as an individual, what you can do as an individual to mitigate the risk as you see it, but then to take a look at at the nation and the things that are happening there and say, maybe that is not the best course of action. Maybe the government mandating a shutdown was not the best course and that yet had all these negative side effects and and whether or not it did anything because once again you can never know isn't really the issue the issue is about whether the government should be 
taking away our risk in the yeah, first place. Yeah, whether they should be trying to control risk and why on this issue and not, not all the others is the, the question, especially when there are things, some of the, the things that you cited that are much more dangerous, much more dangerous and, and, and are every single year. And it's a, yeah, it's an interesting question. Mm-hmm. It's a and part of the, one of the things that occurs to me as we're talking about this, that we, our society benefits from having people that have varying degrees of, you know, that, that treat different risks differently. There are issues where I'm glad that there are people willing to take risks that I'm not. And there are issues where I'm glad that people are more careful than I am, right? And being able to have that dynamic, being able to have individuals acting as individuals and, and acting in different ways is is extremely beneficial. And to accept some level of risk in our lives because that's the only way yeah. to move forward. Yeah. And I just want to say one last thing, you know, as we're talking about this, I, I think of something that that I heard once, which is that it's not it's not about planning, but it's rather about who plans for yeah. who. And that is really what this comes down to when we talk about when we talk about navigating risk is is if you think about it, if you think about how much you currently respect the government and and <laughs> officials on many different levels, whether state or or federal, and you think about you know, which party has a majority and whether you're part of that party. Are you really comfortable with those people deciding the minutia of how you're going to live your life? Do you think that they're going to make the decisions that are best for you and best for me? Because, because I don't. And, and so if I had to choose between them deciding which risks are okay for me and which ones aren't, or if I had to choose between each individual choosing I think you know which one I'd pick. Yeah, we're talking about the people who, as we pointed out initially, won't agree because of partisanship on stats. They won't adapt to changing information because it would look like politically backing down. It would look like the other side might have been right or they might have been wrong and they would lose political points or something like that. It's a, it's a And that is exactly what you don't want in a crisis. Right. That's exactly what you don't want. Determining what's okay for risk is something that has nothing even remotely concerning your your general welfare or actual risks. Can't even can't even assess actual risks, let alone <laughs> let alone make good decisions about them. And on that note, we just want to say thank you for listening and and we hope as you uh as you go about your lives tomorrow, you think about all the things that <laughs> right. could kill you throughout your day and the risks that you're accepting. Yeah, if you text on the way and, you drive, you're on the phone, yeah. Yeah, and just and just sit on it for a day and think about those risks and then think about COVID-19 and think about the government's role in regulating those risks and whether or not they should even have one. And hopefully you sh- you'll come to some interesting conclusions and they probably won't be the same conclusions we have, but I think they'll at least be interesting and at least a little bit eye-opening. 